Hello, and welcome to another episode of A Flatpack History of Sweden. Yes, hi. After much deliberation, we have decided to call this episode The Not-So-Missing Iron Age. We struggled to come up with a name, really. We were thinking about ironing out the mistakes or something like that, but we couldn't really come up with a good one. Yeah, there were a lot of puns on ironing, uh, each worse than the previous one, but in the end, we've just gone for the not-so-missing Iron Age, because we thought this episode was going to be not necessarily harder to make, but have less detail to put in it than the previous one. Yeah, and I apologise because I said at the end of the last episode that this wouldn't be as much fun or maybe might be some sort of middle episode before we get to the Vikings, but it is actually really interesting. It's because, like always, the Iron Age is split into more than one period, and perhaps the first period is a bit boring or has less detail, but the next two are actually really exciting. So hopefully we should be able to rehabilitate the Iron Age's reputation in this episode, in that it is actually really interesting. Yeah, it sounds good to me. Sounds like a plan. But let's start with the Swedish phrase. Yes, this week's phrase is Ana uglor i mossen. Something about a bog and owls. Indeed, it translates to to suspect that there are owls in the bog. Okay, like literally in the boggy bit or in the area of the bog? No, or how no, does that work? <laughs> no, in the actual bog, which is a place where owls don't normally hang out. Yeah, which makes the phrase a bit strange. So it means to suspect that something isn't right, that there is something off, something suspicious. It's used similarly to the English expression to smell a rat. So you could say... Hon gjorde allt för att ingen skulle ana ugglor i mossen. She did everything to make sure no one suspected there were owls in the bog, that no one suspected anything. So perhaps what our previous murderers uh, have been trying to do in their shenanigans. <laughs> yeah, they've tried to make sure that no one suspects that there are owls in the bog, that no one gets suspicious. Apparently, the etymology of it is that in Denmark there was an expression, der er ulvar i mossen, which means there are wolves in the bog, which meant that a dangerous situation was looming. But then the wolves in Denmark died out and the owl sort of took its place in the phrase, because the words are relatively similar maybe. And the expression came to symbolize a warning that something dangerous was about to happen. And then that became that there was something suspicious. Um, and it's still a phrase that's used in Danish as well. Yeah, so if you hear a Danish or a Swedish politician say something like, Oh, I actually didn't do the thing you were saying I did. That's not quite right. There's an owl in the bog. Um, then you'll know, even though it sounds weird, you'll you at least have an idea of what they're trying to say. And once again, I would like to apologize for Chris's mildly offensive imitation of Danish. Or was that Swedish? Well, it actually sounded more Norwegian, really. Uh, I haven't quite mastered the fake Swedish accent yet. <laughs> well, we have a tendency to go up and down in tone a lot when we speak English. That is sort of how you're usually portrayed as a Scandinavian speaking English. But it is a difficult language to learn. <laughs> it sounds Italian when you do it. <laughs> 
Oh, well, how about we stop doing accents then and dive into the Iron Age? Yeah, dive into the bog that is the Iron Age, uh, because that's actually where the iron comes from, a bit of a spoiler. Um, so yes, the Iron Age. We're talking about the period from 500 BCE to 800-ish CE, and that period, as we said, is split into a few sub-periods. And despite what I said last week, this will actually be two episodes, because there's so much to talk about. Yeah, it's kind of developed as we've gone along and researched it. The whole Iron Age is split into three sections, which are the pre-Roman Iron Age from 500 BCE to the turn of the millennium, then the Roman Iron Age, which is the first four centuries CE, and then the Germanic Iron Age, which includes the Migration Period and the Vendel Era, so uh, from around 400 CE to 800 CE. Um, but because that final one is so big and complex, we're just going to leave that until the next episode. And so for now, for this week, we'll talk about the pre-Roman Roman Iron Age and the Roman Iron Age, which is really exciting. And just to be clear, these are the terms when you're talking about Scandinavia and Sweden. Um, other areas in Europe have different names for their Iron Ages. Yes, indeed. And it's very exciting. So we now know where we are in time, but what is the Iron Age? Well, iron becomes a thing, hence the name. Not entirely sure how it reached Sweden, but probably through the immigration of the first smiths and the acquisition of technology via trade and contacts with abroad. But that's sort of just the idea of how it got started, because uh, this time Sweden actually had the raw materials to do something. Yes, unlike with the Bronze Age, when there wasn't actually any bronze available natively in Sweden, now there is ore, which is the raw material to make iron, and the wood to make the charcoal. So this metal had far more impact on the general population than bronze. It was used for tools and weapons and remained the foundation of society for hundreds and even thousands of years. Yeah, it's very good to have all the stuff available to you. Yeah, that is very helpful. Yeah, you didn't have to have your sailors go all over the place to collect it. They could instead focus on getting more other interesting things. And also's right in that it became the foundation of society for the foreseeable future, because thanks to iron, you could make better and stronger tools to use in everyday life, in farming and when building houses and so on. And it was much more readily available in Sweden, because you didn't have to go through the effort of importing it. And that led to better farming, better houses and all those things, and a lot more of them. This improvement was needed because actually life got harder in Sweden at the start of this period because of the climate change that was happening before recovering and then starting to thrive at the end. As we talked about already in the Bronze Age near the end of that episode, the climate was getting colder and by the time we reached the Iron Age this climate change is really starting to take hold. It led to changes in the demography of Sweden during the Iron Age. Evidence indicates that as things got well, to put it bluntly, colder and harsher, more people moved inland. New areas were populated and people started farming more independently rather than in large communities, but with better techniques and, as Chris said, with better tools. 
In many ways, we see how necessity is the mother of all invention, because not only did they make better tools with the help of the introduction of iron and also later steel, but we also see the first mills in Sweden popping up during this period, which had a huge impact on both farming and on people's food intake. Yeah, finally we can start to refine the bread-making process with mills for making flour. Tasty, tasty bread. Yep, bread, 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 bread. Yeah. And you like this Scandinavian bread that they're starting to make here too. I love Scandinavian style bread. Rye bread. So dense you can use it to kill someone. That's what bread should be like. Yeah, having the consistency of a brick. Exactly. Um, so if iron was so important for the everyday Swede, what's the first evidence we have of them actually producing it? Well, the first iron objects were probably imported from the Celts. In fact, the word iron in Swedish jern comes from the Celtic language. Then Swedes started making their own because, like we said, for once we actually have the raw material available ourselves. This was done first by building a furnace near a lake or a bog that had a lot of ore in it. You dig the ore out in spring and summer and then you heat it up in the furnace and the iron sinks to the bottom. That is a very simplified way of describing it, but the process is effectively the same today. Hopefully there's no owls in the bog whilst you're doing this. <laughs> oh no, I didn't see the connection there. A good one. As we've seen with so many things in ancient Sweden, the knowledge of iron making came from Denmark, first to the south of Sweden and then spreading across the country. Well, that's a pretty decent overview of the Iron Age first. Uh, as we said, we don't really have time to talk about all three periods this week, so we'll just start with the first two, which are the two Roman-related Iron Ages. Sounds great. Take it away, Chris. Pre-Roman Iron Age. We start this period in about 500 BCE, and it goes all the way up to the turn of the millennium and 1 CE. So it's a long period of around 500 years, and it involves quite a big change in the way society was structured. One author I read even says that Sweden and its Nordic neighbours were the backwaters of Europe. Oh, that's harsh. Yeah, a bit of a shame, really. And that's why I said in the last episode that this episode might be a bit boring and we might not have too much to talk about, because, yeah, we might just do one episode on this bit, but now there's so much stuff, we're going to expand it a little bit more. So this period, this first bit, is sometimes called the Missing Iron Age, or the Age of No Finds, because there's a lack of archaeological finds in Sweden, and agriculture became pretty much the foundation of society. So this is where that backwards society comes from, these steps that were taken here. Its burials became much simpler with fewer finds, so there were less records to talk about and there were hardly any grave goods to analyse. Trade and contact with the richer Mediterranean region that we talked about in the last few episodes started to dry up as Celtic cultures took hold across Central Europe, and they weren't necessarily as interested in being part of this bigger network. So the gap between Sweden and the wealthier Mediterranean region uh, grew. As a result of the general situation, importation of bronze ceased almost entirely, but local iron production did start. This wasn't really kick-started at this point, it didn't explode onto the scene as it started quite slowly. There still isn't too much of it found in the archaeological record at this part of the Iron Age. 
The big changes in this period was how different sections of society started losing part of their purpose. It is suggested that after the warrior and trading chieftains of the Bronze Age, these upper classes, they began to melt away and became part of the masses once again. If they weren't able to bring in new goods from abroad and travel to make new contacts, there was less reason for them to be seen as the number ones in the local area. And so you could say that most part of social stratification in Swedish society ended as communities drifted a little bit backwards towards that backwater status, as we mentioned earlier, with small egalitarian farming areas forming, because with the lack of trade and contact and goods being brought in, society actually became more equal. Which is good in a sense, but it also meant that people grouped together a bit more and farming was refined since farming became more of a main focus. This started off with a few small villages with a small number of farms. Everyday life might have been a bit harder, especially for those former elites, but it was certainly better organised and possibly not even poorer for the majority. Everyone was helping out together, a bit like the Neolithic peoples, just better organised and now with iron and not stone tools. And the farming really did improve in a lot of ways, funnily enough because of the worsening climate. The winters began to become so harsh that cattle had to be kept indoors throughout the colder months. So we got the kind of farming that we still have today, where we keep animals inside. And what do animals do a lot of the time? Poop. Yep, and so when they've been kept inside for four or five months of the year, this led to a huge build-up of manure, which was pretty smelly, and it wasn't really managed as a procedure up until this point. Manuring hadn't been a real thing, if you remember. Basically, the pooping wasn't controlled. Exactly, we talked about the conscious and unconscious manuring. <laughs> and, uh, but now, once you got to the warmer months, it was time to spread all this huge heap of manure that you built up over the winter which led to much nicer and more productive fields, as communities systematically used up their winter manure supplies. Wow, I never thought about when manuring became a thing in history. No, it's certainly one of those unintended consequences, really. It's a case of we have to keep the animals inside, otherwise they'll die. But now they're giving us this great poop supply that we can use to spread on the fields later. That's extraordinary. Another thing to mention was the fact that the fields themselves didn't seem to have any real separation or formal boundaries in this time. This is particularly important when you talk about cattle, as they like to walk about and don't particularly like sticking to rules. This has led to the suggestion that maybe cattle was also communally owned during this part of the Iron Age and not belonging to one person or one family. The cold also led to people having to resort to wearing trousers now because of the snow and general cold weather. The cattle, of course, perhaps unsurprisingly, also shared these long homes, which at least helped to keep the people warm at night, I suppose. I don't know if you've ever slept next to a cow, but it's like sleeping next to a giant hot water bottle. It sounds like you're speaking from experience. <laughs> uh, I don't. I've never slept next to a cow. 
Well, either way, uh, that wasn't the case in all of the villages. Some of them do seem to have built small barns that they would have kept the more poopy animals in. Well, maybe that was up to you to decide. Do you want your cow sleeping next to you, or do you want your cow in a separate house? (laughs) When you're looking at the evidence of the period, the graves surrounding these small communities really showed the depths to which these people had fallen in some ways in terms of material wealth. Because these graves are pretty similar and there's a big decrease in grave goods when compared to the height of the Bronze Age. The dead weren't taken miles and miles away to religious centres or topped off with huge ceremonial mounds like the King's Grave we talked about last week. Instead, they were very simple, very plain, almost flat-packed graves. Similar, I guess, to graves today. I mean, you're not really buried with your motorcycle or baseball bat or laptop today. No, at least not in our culture. I think there are still places where you are buried with your belongings, but... Yeah, perhaps not as much as the Bronze Age. And that sort of wraps up the pre-Roman Iron Age, really. It's more of a Neolithic style of living in terms of community and lack of specialism, but we have now got iron, and they're doing a bit better in that way. True. It's not necessarily a step back in time, more a step sideways, because we do get developments like manuring and so on. But Chris, should you take us into the next period, which I know you're very excited about? Sure thing. Roman Iron Age. This is where the fun really begins, because I love the Romans, probably my favourite historical figure is a Roman, and they're just generally very cool. Uh, In this period, society started to look a bit more like the Bronze Age again, in terms of luxury goods and complex cultural practices and organisation. So we've done a slide to the right, and now it's slide to the left again. It's it's gone sideways, and we're back on that journey forwards again. Like in a Scottish Cayley dance. I was thinking more of like the cha-cha slide dance and song, you know, slide to the left, slide to the right. I I don't know what you're talking about. Cross-cross. What? <laughs> yeah. Two hops this time. No. <laughs> How do you not know this song? It <laughs> was sung at like all the clubs. It was a huge thing uh, when we were kids. Well, I must have missed it. I'll just have to YouTube it after we've finished recording this episode. Now, please get back to the Roman Iron Age. (laughs) Sure thing. Uh, So in terms of a Swedish context, the Roman Iron Age began at the turn of the millennium. Rome had begun expanding significantly in the previous century as a succession of generals and provincial governors rewrote the scope of Roman Imperium. By the time the dust or screams settled on the infamous Battle of Teutoburg Forest in 9 CE, Varus, give me back my legions, uh, the formal limit of Roman power fell away at the Rhine River and they sort of basically gave up trying to expand northwards. But Rome projected power and influenced people in more ways than just through their provinces, governors and military outposts. Perhaps the most important for people like the people living in Sweden and Scandinavia was trade. And that's because Scandinavia was no exception to this expansion in trade and Roman goods, culture, customs and traders popped up in Germany and by extension all the way up to Scandinavia. Roman culture certainly just didn't dissipate into the waters of the Rhine and stop there. At this point, imports of Roman artefacts significantly increased to Sweden. There were one or two random examples here and then before, but this is when it really kickstarts and goes into overdrive. 
The Rhine and Danube rivers were the super trade highways across Europe, and Sweden absolutely shared in this trade. A staggering array of goods made its way to Sweden, including glass, ceramics, metalwork, textiles, and snazzy Roman coins. The Swedes gave away again, almost exactly like in the Bronze Age, furs, hides, horses, and slaves, which the ambitious traders lapped up and took back to Romanized Gaul and beyond. The Bronze Age trade networks of the Mediterranean and Central Europe were replaced by a local, closer trading partnership, as Swedes didn't need to travel as far to tap into this vast imperial network. By the reign of Hadrian, the first bearded emperor, fun fact, in the early 2nd century CE, Scandinavians were drinking from Roman mass-produced bronze cups and vessels, identical to those found in Pompeii at the time of the devastating eruption in 79 CE. The coloured glass, which was made in German factories of the empire, are also found right across Scandinavia. New agricultural practices also spread northward, and in this time of Hadrian, Roman ideas of farming had begun to be adopted in Sweden as well. The fields themselves were becoming even more organized, and Swedes started to build permanent field boundaries made out of stone, separating the fields into easily manageable rectangles. Again, kind of like what farming looks like today. Iron-made plows also meant that heavier soils could be planted, with rye becoming a favourite, so it was finally time to rein in those pesky roaming cattle as they were put into strict family-run fields to be owned by one group in the village and not owned by the community at large. Yeah, Hilda, stop pooping in the Svensonsfield. You gotta come back and poop in our field instead. Yes, because we own your manure. You're our cow. This slow creep back into the stratified society of the Bronze Age led to most villages having at least one family or one farm that was larger than the rest, showcasing their heightened economic power. These locals were taking advantage of the long-distance trade network to build up their own position in society. Therefore, it can be seen that Roman luxury vessels were in demand in southern Scandinavia because of social and political reasons. These goods were a way to visualize power within the Scandinavian community, a bit like the rock art we talked about in the episode last week was. When we talk about Bronze Age chieftains sailing around Europe getting goods and then drawing about it when they came home. Yeah, this is pretty similar in that way. It's a really obvious way to show what you've been up to. More evidence of these leading families obtaining new positions in society come from the increasingly extravagant graves. So we're back to snazzier graves, with the bodies being buried with a wide range of Roman goods, including weapons, bronze drinking cups, and gold and jewellery. And like with a lot of these things, it didn't take too long for Swedish metal workers and other artisans to be influenced by the Romans too. The main productivity centred on the Lake Mälaren region and the islands of Erland and Gotland. This is where they really start to shine and build their own rich tapestry of history, by using the techniques and styles of the Romans, but by adapting them and making it their own thing. It's also suggested, and half the articles I've read seem to agree with this and the other half not, but it's been theorised that a few men from the region may have even served in the legions of Rome, as the Roman military increasingly relied on foreign manpower to fight off a 
other foreigners. It's definitely accepted that Swedes would have done that, but the argument is on whether or not they returned as the sort of conquering heroes with five wagons of Roman stuff, and if this was how the Roman stuff got to their area or not. They're more likely to have just been the grunts in the legions, and if they did come back, they were just happy to be alive. Um, yeah, so maybe when they did come back, they didn't bring back wagons of stuff, but maybe just a cup. But they did bring back ideas, and after all, it's ideas that drive change in society. Indeed, and one of the things we see in that respect is the ideas of political power a lot more. This centralisation of wealth and power and violent or political ways of getting things done. So whilst they might have come back with some stuff, the, perhaps the most important thing was ideas. And this is also when we get our first written sources mentioning Sweden in sources from abroad. So that's very exciting. The rest of the world is starting to notice our existence. We're no longer just the backwaters of Europe. But more on that in a later episode, because I know Chris is excited to talk about something else right now. Oh, Romans. Yes, this is the age of the Romans, and Chris could talk about this forever. Yeah, luckily it won't be forever, but the Roman period is probably my favourite period of history. I studied it before going to university in what we in the UK call college, but what Americans would call high school. I did classes on classical civilizations, early modern history, archaeology and geography, and I remember when I was sitting down to pick your subjects, the teacher said, three of your four subjects are very focused on history, and I said, yes, because I want to do Roman history at university, and that's what I ended up doing. But yes, this isn't a talk about Roman history because there are much more qualified people to do that and many more history podcasts you can listen to. In particular, listen to The Partial Historians, Tertullus Rankium's Emperor series, uh, Mike Duncan's History of Rome, The History of Byzantium, and The Life of Caesar podcast, which is excellent and morphed into The Life of Augustus and Tiberius and all that. So there's a lot out there to listen to. But like we do in some of these episodes, we want to look at some part of the world to give you an indication of what life was like in Sweden in comparison. It can definitely be seen from Roman records at the time that the Swedes weren't just engaged in trade, but also engaged in piracy. Oh! Yes, and to uh, highlight that, I'll give you a brief quote. A more complicated example of this type of seaborne piracy is the pirate tactics employed by the Franks, Goths, and other barbarians in the 3rd century CE. The raids themselves were varied in both style and scale. This led to the sea having greater numbers on it than ever before put together by the Herulians. In the final engagement against the Herulian pirate fleet, the Roman fleet sank 2,000 ships according to Zosimus, which is uh, obviously not true, but uh, it gives you an indication of how much piracy the Romans thought was going on. And the Herulians were a possible name for the people in South Sweden and South Scandinavia at the time. And the cool thing about that quote is that's a quote from me. Uh, that was what I wrote in my dissertation on Roman piracy, or piracy in the Roman world, uh, which was super fun to research. Oh, that's nice that that got a mention. Yeah, I quoted myself. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in like a thousand episodes time, if we ever talk about drones, I can quote my undergraduate dissertation because that's what I did mine on. Yeah, the Romans didn't have any drones, unfortunately. But the Romans did have to deal with a lot of pirates at the time, and many of these were barbarians, which by extension means that they came from an area 
outside of the empire, and some of these would have come from the general area of Sweden and northern Europe. And we've now recruited one of my friends from school, longtime friend who is an actor who's currently serving his quarantine period overseas, so he's not actually doing any acting at the moment. So we've asked him to read out two quotes for us, because they're quite long, but they also talk about what the pirates would have been doing at this time, and what the Romans would have been doing to stop them. So we start first with a quote from a Roman poet, diplomat, and bishop, quite a cool career there, called Sidonius Apollinaris. And he's talking about what the pirates did, and how they would attack Roman ships. He attacks unforeseen, and when foreseen, he slips away. He despises those who bar his way, and he destroys those whom he catches unawares. If he pursues, he intercepts. If he flees, he escapes. A storm, whenever it occurs, lulls into a false sense of security the object of their attack, and prevents the coming attack from being observed by victims. They gladly endure dangers amid waves and jagged rocks in the hope of achieving a surprise. Yeah, that was really quite exciting. The pirates attacking sneakily and attacking their victims by surprise and talking about how they'd even go sailing during huge storms and stuff like that against their enemy. Sneaky, sneaky, potentially Scandinavian pirates. Yes, so that was from the middle of the 400s, and also roughly at that time, or more in the 300s really, we have a bit from Vegetius's Epitome of Military Science, which was a guy who was a Roman writer during the 300s, and we don't actually know too much about him, but he seems to be writing this book about military science, possibly for the emperor, and he gives a huge description, it's about four books, on how the Roman military and navy works. And so this is a quote from that about how the Roman Empire attacked and dealt with pirates. To the larger warships are attached scouting skiffs, having about 20 oarsmen on each side. These the Britons call picketty. They are used on occasion to perform chases, or to intercept convoys of enemy shipping, or by studious surveillance to detect their approach or intentions. Lest scouting vessels be betrayed by white, the sails and rigging are dyed Venetian blue, which resembles the ocean waves. The wax used to pay ships' sides is also dyed. The sailors and marines put on Venetian blue uniforms too, so as to lie hidden with greater ease when scouting by day as by night. So yeah, that's what I used in my dissertation a lot. Uh, the bit at the end there, because the pirate ships were so much faster than the Roman ships, the Romans had to use uh, what I called James Bond boats when I talk about them because they're so cool. They basically paint everything on the ships blue so the pirates can't see them when they're out at sea. So they're just sitting there in the middle of the sea, waiting for the pirates to come around, and then when they saw the pirates, they would signal the real Roman fleet who were waiting around the corner and would say, the pirates are coming, quick, come out and stop them, which uh, they did, which is a very cool and sneaky way of uh, policing the seas. Yes, very cool. And those quotes were, as Chris said, read out by our good friend, the actor Matthew Winters. So thank you so much for that, Matt. And you might hear his voice again on the podcast. And that's what we've learned from that brief bit about Roman piracy. And that was that these were the sort of methods that the Swedes would have been using if they weren't being happy and nice and just trading and uh, didn't want to deal with all the drama llamas that was going out on the sea. So it wasn't all fun for traders going to Scandinavia. There were pirates too. Definitely. And so today we've covered a lot 
about the Iron Age. To sort of help you place it in history, you can think about the Romans and everything we know about the Roman Empire and that that was broadly going on at the same time. If you'd like a little, just a handy tool to pinpoint where we are in the timeline of history. And speaking of history, I guess this episode is now history. It's done. Yeah, it is. Uh, but we'll be coming back with more on the Iron Age in two weeks' time. Yes, as we've finished the pre-Roman Iron Age and the Roman Iron Age, now we need to continue the story into the Vendor and Migration eras. We'll see what happens right before the Vikings turn up. But for now, I think it's just time to do our regular shout-out to everybody on Twitter and Facebook who's been contacting us. And uh, you can find us on at Flatpak Sweden on Twitter and just a Flatpak History of Sweden on Facebook. And if you do have a uh, platform where you can leave us a review, do leave us a review if you can on iTunes, on Audible, and uh, on all these other places. Just give us a review if you can. It would be lovely to hear from you. Yeah, thank you to those of you who have left reviews. We had our first few iTunes reviews, and once we get a few more, we'll start to name-check people and read them out. But thank you so much. Those reviews really help us getting noticed. But until next time, it's goodbye. Yep, goodbye from me. Hey, Dale.